0: We're looking at first Timothy chapter two, uh, verses four, So verse four. So let's just go ahead and um, let's read it and then we'll then we'll pray. Well, let, let's start with three just so you can get the flow of four. It says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people. That's literally men, all men who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask for your help today. I ask for your help. God, I pray that all things that um, would be helpful, useful, beneficial, Christ honoring, Christ centered would be said all the things that would um, bring division or confusion um, would not be said. Holy Spirit, please speak through me and God work in hearts this morning to see the beauty of your truth in the gospel. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're not familiar with this text, uh, just to let you know, you've, you've come on what could probably be one of the most controversial sermons I've preached the entire time here, so that's a great thing that you get to hear this in this certain way. Um, the reason why it's controversial is not because I'm going to preach it controversial, controversially. Um, it's just been an, a, a, re, a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about this text and how to interpret it. And so um, I'm going to talk about what I think... Um, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth to be. Now, why would I do this? Uh, because this is officially the third week in this text. We, we spent... Um the first week, kind of looking at verses 1 through 4. The second week, looking at verses 5 through 7. And now I'm doing a third week, coming back to this same text again. So why? Why? Why would I spend so much time? Why would I just keep going? I did two weeks. Why would I stop and come back and try to answer what's one of the most controversial texts, which is God desiring all men to be saved. And when we look out in the world, all men aren't saved. So... Um, What's the deal with that? How does that work? If God wants all men to be saved and they're not saved, then how does that work together? Is God not able? Is God not strong enough? Is He not sovereign enough? Is He not all-powerful enough to save them all? Is there something else going on? And then there's been a massive um, kind of two different people, that, two different camps that would try to answer this question. And it's been heated throughout the last 2,000 years on how to answer it. So why would I do this? Two reasons. Um, first of all is um, I think it's helpful for those who might be new to kind of know the position of the church. Um, at least the position of the elders. Uh, and right now it's one. Hopefully there'll be more as we're preaching through 1 Timothy 3. Maybe some of you will aspire. Um, that's what it says in verse 1. But hopefully you'll, you'll get an idea of, of what would um, be the position of the church. I, I've heard grown men say this, and, and I think this is sad. I've heard grown men say this. Um, you know, uh, I'm not really into the deep things of the Bible. I just like to keep everything kind of light. I like to just, you know, light and fluffy. That's what I like. And I think that if grown men and women as as 40-year-olds would take that position, um, then you're really missing out on, on knowing Christ deeply. So the first thing is I want you to know our position as a church just so you can know where we land on this. But the second reason, which I think is more important, is this. Um, for those who land on the same position that I land or for those who hold to Um, the sovereignty of God, it becomes a great um, catalyst for worship for me. Um, If I believe in the sovereignty of God of all things and that God has looked down upon me as a as a wretched sinner and and I know that I would never in my own will choose him. And yet he just wants to show me mercy and save me anyway. That is a great reason for me to worship. If he just saves me anyway, even though I'm awful, horrible, terrible, and I would never desire him. But yet he chooses me and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my child. That should be a great beginning for me, a great desire for me to say, I can't believe that you would want me. I want to live a life of worship for you because I can't even begin to understand why you would do that, because I know myself and you know me even better than I know myself, and yet you've chosen me. So one of the reasons why is that I'm hoping that... um as we're going through this, you'll see that for me, it's a great um, response and worship um, for this and that you'll have that same response. I'm not driving at all for you to agree with me theologically. I'm driving for you to agree with me that this is a, a reason to worship and that you'll want to become a worshiper, that you'll want to become a worshiper. One of the things I have on here um, and I, I don't know if you can see it. I keep a piece of tape right here every week um, and it's from Hebrews 13, 17. And I, I keep this on here because it's a great reminder for me every week. Um, in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, keep watch over their souls. You will give an account. That's that's an exhortation to people who are elders. Um, I have a great responsibility every week to teach you the scriptures um, I don't want to keep it light and fluffy because keeping it light and fluffy keeps you light and fluffy and keeps you not in the world trying to save souls. It just lets you be selfish and walk through. So if I if I grow a congregation that is not concerned for people, but just concerned for themselves, I'm not keeping watch over your souls and I will have to give an account. So I, I will unashamedly dive into some of the hardest things um, in the Bible not because I, I'm trying to be controversial, but because I believe that God's going to hold me to a standard that if I don't do that in the end, I have to give an account for that. So um, I'm going to teach things that though they may not be comfortable. Um, I have to do it. So those are the two reasons. Now, I have I have three children and one on the way. I know I don't look like I'm old enough to have almost four children. Um, it's just a God's gift that I, I look this young um, not many of you will have it. But anyway, um, I have a child, my oldest child. She's five years old, and she just lost her first tooth. Now, some of you might know this story because my wife put it on Facebook. I don't have Facebook. I'm like the, the one person in South Carolina that doesn't. Um, but she put it on there, and she just lost her first child. So, uh, she just lost her, she lost her first tooth. That was awful. She's, she just lost her first tooth. And so as it was, as it was loose for the, for the week or week and a half, um, we were talking about the tooth fairy. Now, we're, we're one of those parents that... Um, that says, hey, the Tooth Fairy is going to come give you a surprise. But really, there is no Tooth Fairy. It's just Mommy and Daddy. Um, we do that with Santa Claus, too. Um, we're just crazy. And so um, she's trying to trying to get all this in her mind. So the Tooth Fairy is going to come um, bring me a surprise. So does that mean that you and Mommy are the Tooth Fairy? And I'm like, well, I guess so, yeah. We're the Tooth Fairy. And so she, she stops and she looks at me and she says, so Daddy, uh, you're a fairy, huh? And so I'm like, no, J.C., I'm not a fairy. Um, there is no such thing as the tooth fairy, but mom, mom and I are just going to pretend like we're the we're the tooth fairy and bring you surprises. That means you're a fairy. No, it does not mean I'm a fairy. J.C. enjoys trying to uh, find all the little intricacies of how to call her daddy a fairy. Um, and and she, she immediately sees the little word game that's going on. Um, yeah, I, I, mommy and daddy are the tooth fairy. Well, that must mean you're, you're a fairy, but I'm not. So she can she can pick up the, the little word game um, today. Some people have tried to say that in this text where God says, I desire all people to be saved. That's just some kind of word game. I'm not going to play word games with you here. I'm not going to say that all men doesn't mean all men. All um, men. I'm not playing word games with you. I'm going to I'm going to exegete this text exactly the way it says that all men does mean all men. Now, Ecclesiastes 311 says that God has put eternity in in the hearts of every man. So that means we believe that um, all of us are created to be everlasting beings and that we will spend eternity for the rest of our lives somewhere. We as a church believe that that we will spend eternity somewhere, whether it be in heaven or hell, we'll spend 75 years here on earth. Some of us will spend 35 years here on earth, but um, after that, we'll go to either heaven or hell. Um, Ephesians one tells us this. It says that in love, God has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So from eternity past, God has predestined those who would be adopted as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why did he predestine? Because it's the purpose of his will to do that, um, To the praise. Here's the reason why it's to the uh, purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's God's sovereign will from eternity past because he wants to adopt some for it because he wants those people to be for the praise of his glorious grace. So God is more concerned about his grace. um, I'm sorry, his glory more than anything else, um, which he has blessed in the beloved. So, um. What we know from this text is that those people, there are people who are predestined to be saved and that it was God's will that he predestined them from eternity past. And he did this for his glory. That's what it's telling us. But we believe that God's put eternity in the hearts of every man. So this means that um, God has predestined some for salvation and that it brings him glory Whenever he whenever they become saved. And in turn, it also brings him glory in some way for those who don't. So God has always been about his glory in the salvation of men for those that he chooses to rescue. And for those, he he lets them continue on in their own choice to willfully sin against him. And either way, he's 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 just if he lets them. Continue on because they chose we all have chosen sin. So if he lets them continue in that sin, he's just. Or if he chooses to save some and why and how we don't know, he's merciful and he's totally just either way in doing it. Um, And so he's doing that because he's created all of us because he's put eternity in the hearts of all of us. He's created us all to worship him and magnify him in some way. Um, Our lives, every one of us, whether we're Christians or not. Our lives are not about us. Our lives, um, he didn't create us to, have to try to make a name for ourselves or to just live for ourselves. All of us were created for him. So his chief concern, always from eternity past, his chief concern has always been his glory. Um, therefore, if his chief concern is his glory, he has the right To bring glory to himself through us who are human agents by any means he desires. I'm just going to give you I've got it looks like around 10 texts right here that are going to show you that are um, about God being about his glory. There's there's a bunch of them in the Bible, but this is just this is just some of them. Um, Psalm 106, eight says, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might Make known his mighty power. So why did he save us for his own name? Because he's always more about his glory than anything else. Psalm twenty five eleven for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Psalm twenty three three. He restores my soul. He leads me into paths righteousness for his namesake. He didn't save you for you. He saved you for his glory and his name. Romans nine. 22 and 23, what if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? That means he created some for destruction, as it says, Um, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. He created some for mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he did this for his glory. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it. For you that I may that I may not cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tried you in the furnace of my affliction of affliction for my own sake for my own sake he says it twice I do it for how for how should my name be profaned? my glory I will not give to another. Here's another verse. There's just countless verses where we can see God is about his glory. This is Jesus praying right before he right before he dies. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you. Jesus praying for his own glory to be to be made known above anything else. John 17, 24, Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. So all those who are going to be saved, I want them to be with me where I am. Why? So they can just hang out and enjoy salvation. No, that they may that they may be with me to see my glory that you have given because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So we see that Jesus is about, is about his own glory. John twelve twenty seven. Now this. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour for this purpose. I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name so we can see there's another verse here. Um, One more. We'll skip some and go down. First Corinthians 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So he's exhorting you wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, that it's not supposed to be about yourself. It's not supposed to be so you can just have fun. Everything you do is supposed to bring him glory. All right. Now, one of the keys to biblical interpretation is that um, hard texts are supposed to be interpreted in light of easy to understand texts. Um, Difficult texts where there's controversy are best understood or best um, interpreted if you look at. The whole of the Bible. So as you look at all the easier to understand ones, you can put it all together. Um, so if God wills, it says who desires or wills all people to be saved and then all people aren't saved. We know that from, the, from just the Bible, it tells us that, that the path is wide that leads to destruction and the path is narrow that leads to life. So we know not all are saved just from the Bible. And if you just look around, you know that not everybody's saved. So here's the problem. If God wills all to be saved, yet all are not saved, then is God not able to carry out his plans? Is he not able to do something? So that's what we're trying to answer today. And really, the two positions kind of answer this in two different ways. One will say, um, God's, God's not being able to save everyone is because he has given over to men Human self-determination. He's given over to them. Um, If if God wills all to be saved and they're not, then what he's decided is there's something greater than his desire for that all people would be saved and this, that all men would have free will. And so what he said is, I want you to have free will. I'm giving over my desire for all to be saved to something else greater, which is your desire to be free. That's the way one people answer this. Um, But listen to this. This is a... uh, this, this is a quote from John Piper um, talking about this, this free will being being given over. He says, when free will is found in this verse, in First Timothy 2, four, when free will is found in this verse, it is a philosophical, metaphysical assumption, not an exegetical, exegetical conclusion. So there's nowhere in this in this verse at all that leads us to say, all right, God desires all to be saved, but more than his desire for all to be saved, he wants men to be free. So he's going to give them free will and let them decide whether they want to be saved. That's nowhere in the text at all. Um, So. If there's nowhere in this text or really nowhere in the Bible that says free will, um, then there must be some kind of different answer. Um, Now, for some reason, For some reason, whenever we we think about it, um, it becomes it becomes philosophically um, not palatable to think that if God's desiring all to be saved and they aren't all saved and it's not free will, then there's something else greater. There's 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 two ways to think about it. if God wants all people to be saved, but he wants to do something else because we know that all people aren't. Then there's either he wants them to have free will, and that's greater than his desire to be saved. Or he wants all people to be saved, but there's something greater, which is his glory. And he he does things for his glory more than that. All right. So we're, we're going to answer that in just a second. Um, so the best way to think about this is not what's what not what's more palatable to me, because God is going to God is going to save however he wants. So we're not wanting to say what's more palatable to me. Instead, we need to just let the scriptures Um, Let the scriptures teach us. We don't want to think about what's more obvious, what's more easier, what's what's more palatable. We want the scriptures to uh, to tell us how this happens, to tell us how this works, not think that it must be free will because the Bible never even uses the the phrase free will. Um, So here's here's the wrong question. It's not is God sovereign because we all I think in some manner would say, yes, we believe God's sovereign. It's what's the extent of. Of God's sovereignty or how far is God's sovereignty going in saving people? Now, one of the complaints I get all the time is uh, by taking a position here, by saying, you know, the answer to this, this dilemma or this controversy that's happened over the last 2000 years by saying, you know, this is um, whenever it's clearly a mystery, um, you're arrogant, you're arrogant for taking a position. Um, and I understand um, I understand why people would say that, because there are people who act arrogant that have this position. But simply taking a position doesn't mean you're arrogant. Um, I don't think that it's arrogant to have a position. I'm willing and I'm humble enough to say that since I'm human, I could be interpreting wrong. But I don't think that it's fair just to say that because you take a position that you're arrogant. Um, What could happen is that if you um, act arrogant about your position, you can be called arrogant. Now... For the last two weeks, we've been talking as we're looking through this about praying about global missions. That's been as we're exegeting the text of verses one through seven. The main point, the main point of this is um, that that we would pray. We see that in verse verse one. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. So we want to remember that as we look at this, um, as we look at um, how God saves that. The whole meaning of this text, verses 1 through 7, is prayer for missions. And so we want to leave it in that. As we try to figure out or talk about how this this works and the details of how it works, we need to remember that this is all in the text of um, or in the position of praying for global missions. So whether you fall down on what would be the historically reformed side or you fall down on what would be the historically Armenian side, it doesn't erase our responsibility that we all have to pray that all men would be saved and that we would all have to actively seek out salvation for for all men. Um, Jonathan Edwards said this. um, He was was reformed and he believed in the sovereignty of God, the the full sovereignty of God. And he said, um, basically this, we don't know whom God has elected. We have no idea. As we look out to all the people we know, we don't know who the elect are. And so since we don't know, we can just let God deal with those things. We should just tell everyone. We don't, we don't save the, the, the gospel message just for those whom we think might be elect and we tell them. We have no idea. So we tell everyone and let God save those whom he has predestined from eternity past. All right, so let's think about this. Um, is it out of the character of God to choose? Is it out of the character of God to choose? Um, And as we're going through this, I just want to kind of keep your mind um, focused with me. I am not trying to convert you over to my position. Um, I, I want to help you know what the position of the church is and help you, along with me, see that this is a great opportunity for worship. I'm not trying to convert you over to my position at all. But you have to see that this is reason to worship. I want to keep this as Jesus centered as possible, not um, reformed centered as possible, as Jesus centered as possible. But as we're as we're looking at this, I just want to ask the question, is it out of the character of God um, as we look at the scriptures to say God wouldn't choose or as we look at the scriptures, God would choose. I'm just going to give you again. These are just some examples. There's lots of text that we could look at. um, But this is just a broad overview of, of some scriptures. Let's just look at let's just look at the Old Testament. Just look at the broad picture of the Old Testament. Did God have a specific people that he chose to be his people and thereby not elect or not choose all the other peoples to not be his people. We, we know he chose the Israelites and then he chose not to have the Edomites or the Philistines or, or whoever. As a matter of fact, he told the Israelites to go and kill all those people because they weren't his people. So as we just look at kind of an, as a broad view of the Old Testament, we know that God, um, it's not out of the character of God to choose people um, but I also want to get, just kind of give you some examples from the scriptures that he also chooses individuals. Um, just look at Abraham. And here's, here's just some stories. Um, Abraham, a pagan, just going through life. There, there was nothing um, particularly great about Abraham at all. The scriptures are clear to tell us he's just a pagan living in a pagan land and walking around. And he, he looks at Abraham and he says, I, I'm going to choose you to be the father of the Israelites. Just because that's what my will is. Um, if you keep going, uh, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn. Um, Isaac was his secondborn, but he, he chose to have Isaac as the one that he would carry his family name, not Ishmael. After that, um, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Um, and here we see that he chooses not to have again the firstborn Esau, but chooses to have Isaac to be so we can see he's choosing individuals. As a matter of fact, in Romans nine, it says, um, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. Now, is that because Esau did something bad as he was living? Is that why he decided to choose Jacob and not Esau? The scriptures tell us in Romans nine, Romans nine, that before Esau was even born, he says, Jacob, I love Esau, I hated, though they were not yet born and had not had done nothing, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose in election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. So God just decided from eternity past, not based on the things that they would do, but just based on his purpose in election, I am going to choose Jacob and not choose Esau. Um, some more text. We, we, we studied this uh, a month ago or two months ago, um, John 5, where... Um, there was just multitudes of invalids and Jesus walks up and decides just to heal one, leaving all the other multitudes there still crippled. Um, another place in John fifteen sixteen, this is what it says. He said, you did. It, this is so straightforward. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that you should um, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask it. So that whatever you ask the father in my name will be given to you. Here's here's just a few more texts about God um, showing that He chooses, and that it's not out of the character of God to choose or appoint. Um, For many are called, but few are chosen. For when the Gentiles heard, that was Matthew twenty two fourteen Acts thirteen forty eight. For when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Um, Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. To be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he called. So not everybody's called. Um, those who are predestined are called and those who are called, he justifies and those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Um, Ephesians one one eleven, it says in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Colossians three twelve put on then as God's. Chosen ones, um, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience first thessalonians four one four for we know brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you first um, peter two four as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of god 's the sight of God, chosen and precious, and this is just this is just 10 or 12 verses. There are multitudes more in the Bible, if you look through, that say chosen, elect, appointed, predestined. Um, so as we come here, we're just going to let the Bible speak for itself as we try to understand what 1 Corinthians... I'm sorry, First Timothy. I keep First Corinthians all week. 1 Timothy 2.4 saying. Now, there's two ways that we can try to understand this. Um, first is in the textual... Um, Understanding just what is the text saying biblically, and the other way is just how can we understand understand this theologically? Um, if God wills all to be saved, yet not all are all saved, how can we understand that? And we're gonna we're gonna understand both. We're we'll look at both of them textually first of all. Um, Calvin and I, I'm not gonna necessarily try to follow this argument. I just want to give you an understanding of how some people interpret this textually. Um, John Calvin, uh, the New Testament commentary. They'll they'll say, as we look at this verse, when we see verse four, who desires all men, it says people in the ESV, but all men to be saved. What they're going to say is um, this is Calvin's direct quote. We see the childish folly or foolishness of those who represent this passage to be opposed to predestination. If they say that God wishes all men indiscriminately to be saved. It is false that some are predestined by his eternal purpose to salvation and others to punishment in hell. They might have some ground for saying this if Paul were speaking here about individual men... But the present discourse relates to the classes of men and not to individual persons. For the apostle simply means here that there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation. The reason why he says that Paul is not talking about individual men, but just simply classes or people or groups is because of the verse right above it. In verse two, it says for kings and for all who are in high positions. So he's arguing that since he's um, in verse two saying we're praying for these Groups of people and we're praying for these groups of people as you continue in verse four when it says that he desires all men that he's talking about. He desires all kinds of men to be saved from all different kinds of ranks and all different kinds of classes and all different kinds of nations and all different kinds of languages. He's arguing more that this is this is about kinds of people Um, in the New Testament. commentary will say the same thing. Now, that's not necessarily the way I want to try to understand this today. I want to understand it in a different way, which is... um, the theological, because honestly, if we can look at that and say, maybe, maybe that's what the text is saying. But I think there's a different way to look at this um, to give us a better understanding. And the way I want to look at it is, is thinking about that God has two, two wills. Whenever he says that he wills all to be saved, that he also has another will. Um, and I'm going to explain what that means. Um, if God wills all to be saved and they're not. Um, Let me me read this quote. It says, the assumption is that if God wills in one sense for all to be saved, then he cannot in another sense will that only some will be saved. Because if God wills all to be saved, then they should be. So that means that it must be that he's willing all to be saved, but at the same time only willing some to be saved. And that seems confusing. Um, So this verse doesn't necessarily create um, or solve the issue, but it creates it. Um, so there are what I see two wills of God. And what I think, actually, if, you, if you're if you're honest, both sides will say that there's two wills here. Um, one is saying that it's free will and the other is saying that it's God's glory. Um, this is a quote from John Piper on this. It says God has two ways of willing. It implies that God decrees one state of affairs while also willing and teaching that a different state of affairs should come to pass. This distinction In the way that God wills has been expressed in various ways throughout the centuries. So there's there's lots of words that we use to say this. It's not a new contrivance. It's something that's been historically agreed upon for a long time. It says, for example, theologians have spoken of the sovereign will and the moral will. Some people have called it the efficient will and the permissive will. Some people have called it the secret will and the revealed will. Some people have called it the will of decree and the will of command. That's the one that we'll use today, since there's all kinds of the decretive will, the perceptive will, the will of sign or the will of good pleasure. Um, And it's important that this distinction, when we're saying that there's two wills, um, is not because we're trying to say. A, uh, a logical or theological deduction. It's inescapable in the scriptures that there are two wills of God all throughout. We're going to give several examples. Um, some people will say that that's not um, logical. They're going to disagree to saying that there can't be two wills of God. Um, usually those are the people who believe in human self-determination or free will. Um, they'll say God can't have two wills. Um, he can't have one thing over another. But... If they're saying since all people, God wills all people to be saved, but he desires something greater than that, which is that he would give all men free will to choose. Um, are they not making a distinction in the aspects of the will of God? Are they not also saying that there's two wills? He desires all to be saved, but his greater will is that they would have free will. So they're, they're making an, a, a distinction as well. This is a... Uh, this is a quote from Wayne Grudem. He says, Both sides must say that there is something else that God deems more important than saving everyone. Reformed theologians will say that God deems his own glory. More important than saving everyone. And that, according, and that according to Romans 9, God's glory is also furthered by the fact that some are not saved. Arminian theologians will say that something else is more important to God than the salvation of all people. Namely, the preservation of man's free will. So in a reformed system, God's highest value is his own glory. And in an Armenian system, God's highest value is the free will of men. Um, it seems that the Reformed position has much more explicit biblical support than the Arminian position does. What he's saying is that um, if you're looking for free will in the Bible, you're not going to find it. If you're looking for verses about God being about his glory, you're going to see tons of those. Um, So as we're trying to answer this, um, can God will um, something that he won't allow? If God is willing all men to be saved, but he's not allowing all men to be saved... Is that possible? Is that logically possible? Not just logically, but do we see that in the scriptures? I'm going to give you three examples from the scriptures. The third one will be directly with this text. First one, Pharaoh um, in in the book of Exodus. In Exodus eight one, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him. Moses needs to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh in in Exodus eight one, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. God is... Commanding Pharaoh through through Moses in Exodus 8 1, let them go. I want you to not keep them captive anymore. Now, in Exodus four, four chapters before he commands that, listen to what God says. If he's going to command something, he's going to expect it. But look what he does right here. He's going to actively work against that command. He's telling Pharaoh, let him go. And now in Exodus chapter four, he's going to tell us that command that I'm going to give in, Rome, in, in Exodus eight. I'm going to actively work against that command to happen. This is what it says in Exodus 421. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put into your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. But in, in Exodus eight, he's telling them, let my people go. But in Exodus four, he's telling them, Moses, when you tell them to obey my command, I'm going to actively work against his obedience to my command. That's that's one example already in scripture. where We're seeing God wills one thing. God commands one thing, but he also his will is that something else would happen. And he's going to actively work against that. That's that's what we're talking about here when we say. Um, will of Command. And will of decree, will of command is telling us what he wants us to do. Will of decree is his eternal plans as how he wants to happen. Will of command, go tell him to let my people go. Will of decree, I'm going to work against that because I want something else to happen. Now, listen to this. Um, it says this um, in Exodus 10, 17, Pharaoh acknowledges when he doesn't let God's people go, that he's actively engaged in sin by not doing it. He's actively engaged in Exodus 10. It says this now, therefore, forgive my sin. This is this is this is Pharaoh talking. Forgive my sin, please. Only this once and plead with the Lord that your God only to remove this death from me. So here we see um, the two wills of God being actively played out where he wills or commands one thing, but works against that and by willing or commanding some or bringing about something else. Here's another one. That's first example. Here's another one. This is probably the best example is Jesus I I think we would all agree that when God says thou shalt not murder, that is a a command of God that we should follow. We should never murder, especially we should never murder the son of God. We would all say that it's definitely a sin to murder Jesus. Whoever did that, they were sinning when they murdered Jesus. Um, all right. Um, I skipped something. All right. Um. It's a definite sin to kill God, but it was also God's definite plan from eternity past for Jesus to die. Listen to this verse. Um, This is Acts 2. This Jesus. Let me just read the whole thing to you. Um, Acts 2. I'm starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. It was a definite plan from eternity past that Jesus would not only come, but that he would be killed by the hands of men. That is a that is a will of decree from eternity past. I want my son to come and live and also die by the hands of men. But we would all agree that it is a will of command that you should not murder. So God is willing one thing, don't murder, but also willing another thing which actively works against that first one, which is I want my son to die at the hands of men. This is another another verse I want you to hear, um, just giving us a little more insight of how intricately involved God was in the men's minds and hearts that would do the murder of him. And this is Acts four twenty seven for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. These men were against him whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So we see here that God has designed these specific men to carry out the murder of Jesus from eternity past. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We see two wills here. We would all agree that it's a sin to kill Jesus, but we all know that it's a sin to kill so it's, it's in one sense, a will of command that you would not kill, but also God working against that, that will of not murdering the definite plan all along for Jesus to die. Now, here's, here's something absolutely amazing. Um, in Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. So we know that it was God's plan all along for Jesus to die. All right, let me read a quote to you here. It says this means that the distinction between terms like will of decree and will of command or sovereign will and moral will is not an artificial distinction demanded by reformed theology. These terms are an effort to describe the whole of the biblical revelation or the whole of the revealing of God. They are an effort to say yes to all of the Bible and not silence any of it. They are a way to say yes to the universal saving of 1 Timothy 2.4 and yes to the individual, unconditional election of Romans 9, 6 through 23. Um, now, there's a, there's a good chance that as we hear these things, um, I remember as I first heard these things whenever I was, I was younger, um, I had never even heard these things growing up in church. No one had ever, I guess I, when I read the Bible, I just kind of skipped over the words elect. I don't, I don't know, but um, whenever I was around, I guess this is about 15 years ago, um, I, I heard this for the very first time, and I was just like, I was angry. I didn't like it. I was, I mean, I was very, very violently opposed to it, um, and so I wanted to understand it more. And so one of my friends had a book called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to get that book, um, read this position, understand this position so that I could have more ammunition against it and get um, get even more passionate in people's faces about how wrong they were. And so I got this book chosen by God. Now, the problem was, is that I was not by any means. Um, proficient in the scriptures, not that I am now, but I just had a, it's like I had a vacuum of understanding of the scriptures. I, I just read my favorite ones and I tried to, and this is a good thing, try to tell people about Christ and help them see Jesus saved me, you should be saved and just ask Jesus in your heart and you'll be saved. Um, so I got that book because I wanted to find more ammunition against this position. And as I read the book, um, there were just multitudes of texts. That I had never read before, and so as I kept reading the Bible, reading the Bible, I, I, became, I became more and more angry, and I, I started finding myself um, just getting very frustrated. I, I have uh, my my youngest son; he's one year one year old, um, one years old, one year old. What do you say? He's one, so one year. Um, and I, I found he's he's a little bit um, on, he's falling on the side of his sister Jacy. Jaycee. Jacy's very very perfectionistic. Karis, my my second daughter, is the opposite of that. If there is ever like Karis will actively do things to make messes just to make J.C. mad. Um, but we're seeing now that Aiden is starting to fall into this perfectionistic thing. Whenever I'm putting on his clothes, um, if I put his pajamas on and I pull it up, if I leave, the, you know, the little bottom part, if I leave it down over his foot, he freaks out. He's like, ah, and he pulls it up and he gets all mad. Or if he has his sock on and I just pull it off just a little bit, so about an inch or so hangs off his toe, um, he freaks out and he's like, ah, he pulls him up. Or if I put his shirt on and his sleeve stops there and he can't 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 get his hand through he'll just freak out he wants to push him through or if i roll up his sleeve he gets mad he pushes him down like he's he's he gets violent he gets very frustrated it's it's very funny um but god is not trying to frustrate us in the same way as he shows us these texts we may we may as we first read them get angry or say it's not fair um But as we we think it's not loving or it's not fair, uh, the best question to say is if you are saved, if you are a Christian, was it fair for God to save you? That wasn't fair either. So we can't get frustrated like my son and just want to freak out because we get mad at what the Bible says to us. Um, In the end, if God is sovereign and God is good and we believe these things, the way he moves, the way he acts, the way he does things... um, Are Always good and we we can't um, get mad at him for the way he he chooses to say save. All right. So we talked about Pharaoh. We talked about Jesus. Now we want to talk about this third one, um, which is this verse here. Um, God willing one thing in one sense, but also in another sense, having something else. All right. First Timothy two four says who desires all men or all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So that would be that would be the will of command. He desires or he wills or he commands all to be saved. But let's let's look at this verse. We read it just a little bit um, in the very beginning. And I want you to see. um, More of a a bigger understanding or or Paul expounding on salvation a little bit more in depth in in, in Romans 9. All right, let's look at this. Um, Let's start at verse 21. Now he's talking about. People that are made out of the same lump. That means we're all the same. We're all humans. We're all made in the image of God. And he's going to talk about some being made one way and some being made the other way, but all being made out of the same lump. Look what he says here in Romans 9, verse 21. He says, has the potter, God, no right over the over the clay to make out of the same lump? So there's not like some people are different. We're all the same. We're all depraved, all totally sinful, depraved. Out of the same, but still have the image of God inside of us. Has God out of the same lump one vessel? Has God the the potter no right to make of the same clay out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? When he talks about vessels, he's talking that vessel means a person. So has God no right out of out of the same lump to make one person for honored use and another for dishonored use? And what he's saying is that um, one. To be saved, one to be for the glory of God and other to make them to not be saved, to not be for the glory of God. Has he no right to do that? That's what he says in verse 21 and then verse 22. What if God let me let me explain verse 22 before we get to it? Um, If there weren't and I'm just going to this this may sting. If there weren't ugly people in the world and I'm not saying anyone here is ugly. But if there weren't ugly people in the world we wouldn't know who the beautiful people were. Does that make sense? If, if there weren't people who smelled bad, we wouldn't know what smells good. Does that make sense? It's impossible to know what is desirable, what is beautiful, or what smells good without having something to compare it to. If you go to the dump to take your trash, then you say, okay, this is awful. This stinks like, you know, dung. Um... Therefore, when I walk into my wife's kitchen and I smell her cooking, oh, this is good. She can, she can cook very well. This, this smells good. Does that make sense? So we wouldn't know what smells good unless we spent time in the dump. Um, so that's what he's saying here. Has he no right to make out of the same lump some for honored use and some for dishonorable use? And look at what, look at what he says here in 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? So what he's saying is, those who are saved would not know the beauty, the joy, the glory of Jesus and be, by being saved if there weren't people who weren't saved. We would not know how great and glorious Jesus is if there weren't people who aren't going to be saved. So that when we look, we say, that was my condition. I can't believe how wretchedly sinful I am by being able to see that ugly, sinful stink I understand what I've been saved to and what I've been declared and what I've been, what I've been given which is righteousness now I understand how great and glorious that is because I have a comparison that's what he's saying God has designed from eternity past to design some to be saved and not be saved so that those who are saved can look at those who aren't and understand the vast love and mercies of God. And this is where the worship part comes in and know what they've been saved to. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured or created or prepared, has endured with much patience, vessels with wrath, those he has created people who won't come to Christ, prepared for destruction Why did he create them in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I'm just reading you the Bible here. I'm not making this stuff up. This is exactly what the scriptures are saying. God has created some for salvation so that those who aren't going to be saved, um, when they look at them, they will say, I can't believe how great God's mercy is. So our response isn't, oh, well, I just do what I want. This is so Christocentric so that we can make known the riches so that we can see the riches of his glory. The riches, the vastness, the beauty of all of the glory of Jesus is being made manifest to us, not just in righteousness being given to us, but also as we look at the sinful people that we were once like so that we can... Understand the love of Christ and be compelled because we don 't know who 's god 's elect are, we have no idea to go to them and plead with them there 's a better life you don 't have to stay here, and we can say it because i don 't know come to Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. I'm not going to worry about whether you are or not elect, because that's God's business, that's not mine. I know that because God is choosing, that is beautiful and that's helping me see how great it is to be chosen, how great it is to be a worshiper of Jesus, and we will go and we will plead with them. Please put your faith in Jesus. You don't have to walk down this path. That is, in the scriptures here, God's will of command and will of decree. It's not unloving. It's not unfair. God is love. Therefore, what he does is always loving. So what does this mean? What is our conclusion here? Um, First of all, as Christians, love is primary. We should be loving towards every person and unity. Unity is primary. Um, We don't argue over secondary issues. This is a, whether you're reformed or not is a secondary issue. A primary issue is the gospel itself. That Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Therefore, I should tell everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself, I am very guilty of not being able to apply love in every circumstance. Um, I'm very guilty and I drastically need to improve in... In all circumstances, applying the love of God in all of my relationships and, and everything that I'm doing. Um, now, God, th- it, this text or this truth does not mean this—that you argue with people. This is supposed to bring more unity than than division. Um, if you affirm the, to- if you affirm this, then you affirm the total depravity of man. If you affirm the total depravity of man, then you affirm that. You didn't come to a knowledge of this by yourself, that God lets you understand it. Therefore, if you're totally depraved and God lets you understand it, you have no reason to brag that you have an understanding. That would be arrogant. So if you affirm this, you're the ones who are least likely, should be least likely to try to argue or bring someone to your conclusions because you're so smart, you figured it out and they didn't. Um, you, just like me, are a pitiful man totally dependent upon God. The second thing is, this does not mean that we don't do evangelism. Um, God has, number one, um, commanded us to do evangelism. So we should absolutely do it. Number two, God has commanded us to love our neighbor. So we should love them. That's why we want to evangelize them. Um, And I think that as we do evangelism, as you actually share with people, You will grow spiritually. There is a there's a spiritual growth benefit whenever you share. I I, I talk to some of you who actually do evangelism, who actually tell people the gospel, who actually tell people how to be saved. And when I talk to you about it, um, I see language of spiritual growth. I hear that. And so there's a definite growth um, part in doing evangelism. So you have to do it. So if you're not evangelizing, if you're not actively doing evangelism, then you are in definite sin. You need to repent and become more loving and and hop into what would be real Christian life, which is not just killing sin, not just being in church, but also sharing your faith actively. Now, this is how I want to close. I want to read some verses from you from Philippians, and this is how we're going to close. Um. Philippians chapter three, when I was reading it this week, is the best way. This is for um, this is for some of you who might not know Christ. If you don't know Christ, I want to I want to ask you something. If I were to tell you right now. That you could have everything you wanted in life. Everything you've ever wanted, if I could tell you if I was to tell you right now that you could have everything you wanted in life, like meaning, purpose, acceptance, friendship. Forgiveness of sin, and most of all, love. Those are the things you're really looking for. You, you may say you're looking for partying, or a girl or a guy, or a new car, or money, or a job, or whatever. You may say you're looking for those things. That's not what you're looking for. In the end, we're all looking for this. Meaning, purpose, acceptance, friendship, um, forgiveness of sin, and most of all, love. That's what we are searching for. If I were, if I were to tell you today that you could have that. Absolutely, without a doubt, this morning, today, you could have that. You could finally be loved. You don't have to give yourself over to ladies. You don't have to give yourself over to guys anymore searching for love. You can find the most true love ever. Guys, you don't have to go around searching for meaning in your in your jobs or meaning in trying to find a, a date or a girl. You can have absolute 100 percent love today. If I were to tell you that you could have it today. Would you come and get it? If I were to show you what the best thing in life is this morning, would you listen? Listen to this Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, if there's any gain in your life at all, what you count as gain as as a sinner, as a as a person who's not a believer. I have made a name for myself in my school. I have made a name for myself in my job. I have got the most fine wife or most fine girlfriend. I, that's my gain or whatever it is that you're hoping for that is going to affirm you, make you feel loved, make you feel accepted, make you feel um, that you have purpose, that you have meaning, if it's not Jesus, but whatever that is, if you have found that your gain, all your love and all your hope is in that thing, what you need to do is this. You need to count that as loss for the surpassing knowledge of Christ. Look what it says. It's I indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So if I was to say to you today, whatever it is you're looking for. It is in no way near, no way near comparison to what you can have in Christ. You won't find the acceptance that you're looking for anywhere unless it's in Jesus. You won't find the love that you're looking for anywhere unless it's in Jesus. Whenever I was working at, at Charleston Southern, there was a girl. She was not a believer. Um, she would be receptive to the gospel some. Um, she was my age. She was not married. I was married at the time. And she worked in the office. And time after time, she would be receptive to the gospel until she got a boyfriend. As soon as she got a boyfriend, she would go over. She was banking all of her hope, all of her acceptance, all of her trust, all of her forgiveness, all of her love in him instead of Jesus. She would give herself over to him Totally. The relationship would go. He would use her. He would dump her. And then after that, she would be more receptive to the gospel. And then that's when I would try to start sharing. And as soon as we'd start making headway, some guy would come into the picture. She wouldn't listen to me anymore. I'm begging you not to fall into that cycle, whether it's girls, whether it's guys, whether it's money, whether it's job, whatever it is. If you are searching for meaning somewhere, it's only going to be found in Jesus. He says, I count everything as scubala, rubbish, dung for the ash heap. I count everything that I think is great as as dung compared to knowing Jesus. There isn't anything better in life than knowing Jesus. I know you think one day I'll do that because that's what I'm supposed to do when I'm older. Or that's when I finally get this thing accomplished once I buy that house, once I buy that car or whatever. That's not the message of the Bible. The Bible tells you that your life... You ever walked outside in the morning and there's, there's water on the grass... And by 10 or 11 o'clock, all that water on the grass is gone, the dew. The Bible describes that dew as your life. It's there in the morning and by 11 a.m. it's gone. That's how long your life is. If your life is just a mist, a vapor in the wind. Then this isn't something you play around with. This isn't some decision you put off for the day that you think that you'll finally want to start following Jesus. If you can have and why would you if you can have ultimate meaning, ultimate love right now rather than later. Well, you'd be a fool not to want it now. Look what it says here. Verse nine says and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. But from what comes from not comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You can have this ultimate meaning, ultimate acceptance, ultimate love, ultimate purpose by faith in Jesus. It's that beautiful. It's that simple. Faith in Jesus right now. Is that going to make you perfect? They're going to make you perfect right now. No, the apostle Paul says this not in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's not a perfect person here. If someone here is a Christian that, you know, they are far from perfect. If you know me personally, you know that I am wretchedly sinful, very far from perfect. Spend some time around my wife. She'll let you know. I'm not inviting you into perfection. I'm inviting you into love. I'm inviting you into forgiveness. I'm inviting you into acceptance and purpose. Finally, life. Whenever I was young, I used to read this verse here. It says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. And I used to always think that the prize was eternal life. That makes perfect sense. I press on towards the prize. And I started realizing that if the prize is just eternal life, well, that's that's, that's very much a self-centered way to think about it. If all I want to do is just not go to hell and just go to heaven, then eternal life, oh, how do I get there? Jesus, that's what I want. Eternal life. The prize has got to be eternal life. But as I've grown in my faith and I've started realizing... Instead of having a self-centered view, thinking that the prize is eternal life. What if God's trying to tell me something different? What if it what if it's I press on to the call for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? What if the prize is an eternal life? What if the prize is Christ Jesus? Knowing him, having a relationship with him, being to be his friend, being accepted by him, being loved by the most important reality in the universe. The prize isn't just eternal life. That's a self-centered way. The prize is Jesus. That's, that's a Christocentric, that's a God-centered way to think about the prize. And so since Jesus has saved me and Jesus can save you, because remember what I'm driving for here is worship. Worship. What I'm driving for is worship. Since Jesus has saved me, and if you would put your faith in Him today, He can save you. Your thankfulness for being saved turns into love for Christ. This love turns into complete awe and adoration of this man that would choose you from eternity past, though you were wretchedly sinful. And as adoration continues on, it turns into all-out worship. You will literally Worship the ground that Jesus walks on. Thankfulness to love, to adoration, to worship. That's where we're going is worship. The prize is an eternal life. The prize is Jesus. So back to my question. If I were to show you what the best thing in life is right now, would you come and get it this morning? What you're looking for and what you'll always be looking for is Jesus. What you want is Him. Will you come to Him today? You're here right now. This morning. God has sovereignly brought you here. You're not going to run very long. He's going to show you, if He hasn't already this morning, just how beautiful He is, just how beautiful the gospel is. And you're going to surrender your heart to Him. So why not do it today? Because everything you're looking for is here right now in Christ Jesus. And you'd be crazy to think that there's something more beautiful, something more valuable, something more loving, someone more loving other than him. He's told us that it's all in him. Here's the most beautiful part of the whole thing. Romans 5 8 tells us this. God demonstrated his love for us that, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait for you to get unsinful, undirty, unclean, and then die for you as if there there was something beautiful inside of you that he wanted. While you were still a sinner, while you were still wretched, while there was nothing lovely inside of you, and there was no will or desire to love him whatsoever, he died for you then. That's far more loving than to die for you if you had cleaned yourself up. God demonstrated his love for you, though while you were still a sinner, he died for you. That's unbelievable. That gives us reason to worship.